Before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, let's do a quick refresher. Jesus has just begun to teach in parables. Parable is the word parabolos, which means where you get parallel lines, two lines that are next to each other. And he, he teaches a heavenly truth with an earthly illustration to help you understand it better. And he tells these stories and he's, he's going through a teaching of the parables. And the very first parable he taught was a parable of the soils. He said, if you don't understand this parable, you're not gonna be able to understand the others in this whole string of parables. And so we went into great depth to discuss that, that you had the, the path, the hard ground, the shallow ground, the wheat choke ground, <clears throat> and then the, the fertile ground. And the idea is the, 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 the man who's sowing is the Lord, it's us, and he's sowing seed. The seed is the word of God onto the earth. The ground represents the earth. And, and there's an enemy, Satan, and he wants to snatch that word out of people's hearts. So on the shallow ground, the birds come and take it, on, or on the hard ground, on the shallow ground, They've, they've been exposed to the truth, but they have troubles in their life and trials, and they haven't been grounded. So when some trials come, they wither and fade. For others, they're, they get soil, and they start to take root and grow, but they're choked out by the cares of the world, and these weeds of the world just make them unfruitful. And then the other group is the fruitful ones that have 160, 30-fold return because they're in fruitful soil. Their roots go down deep. And as we've studied, that represents the entirety of the earth. And God wants us to scatter his word, his truth, his commands on the earth. And as we saw in, in um, Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're scattering that seed to establish his kingdom on the earth, not that everyone would be saved, but that his law, his command would take root in the governments of man so that you could be convicted of your sin. And the Bible says that God's law is a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ because when we see what is right and we're doing what is wrong, that brings conviction and hopefully repentance and transformation. And so governments are to operate in the context of right and wrong. And that, that truth is established by God's word. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So this is the idea of the soil. And so our job, how you make hard ground, shallow ground, and weed choke ground as fertile as the fourth soil, which is the fertile ground, is real simple. You have to prepare the ground. We've got to prepare the soil, scatter the seed. Prepare the soil, scatter the seed. Prepare the soil, scatter the seed. It's a lot of work. And God's called his people to do that work. We are caring for that vineyard. We're caring for that field. We prepare the soil, we scatter the seed. And then he goes on, later to explain who the players are in the parable. He, he does the explanation of the parable of the sower. But then he goes into the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we know that in the parable of the wheat and the tares, there's an enemy with an agenda. And, and we saw that the, the, the darnel looks like wheat when it's young and an enemy goes out and scatters it and he tries to choke it out. And, and we saw pictures of that. And this is an idea that there's a, a competing agenda an ideology to shut down God's word, his truth, to bless mankind and cause the earth to be fruitful and multiply and, and have a blessing on the earth as we honor him. We're, listen, we're living on his dirt, breathing his air, drinking his water and eating his food. And, and the enemy comes out to try to dissuade us and, and, and turn us from honoring and glorifying him. And so this is what we do. We prepare the soil, we scatter the seed. And so we know that there is opposition and there's an agenda in that opposition and our job is to do that. Now the church we saw in the parable of the mustard seed is this abnormal growth of the church that we're so impressed with our buildings and our budgets and our baptisms and we think big is always better and this abnormal growth then the birds come and nest in the, in the, the, the branches of this abnormally huge uh, tree and this abnormal growth and this represents... Um, where, where we move away from the order of creation and, and we think that because it's big that somehow it's legitimate. It's not. It's abnormal. It's not in accordance with what God desires. And, and all those who are listening will be in Israel, will see mustard plants. They don't grow to the size of trees. Anyone who would see a mustard plant looking like a tree would go, that's abnormal. And so this is, this is what Jesus is teaching. They understand it. Then we saw the parable of the leaven that the woman put measure of leaven in the flour. And we know what leaven is. It's a microorganism that, uh, you know, produces gas and that's what makes bread fluffy. So really, if you like fluffy bread, you're just eating microorganism gas. Isn't that just wonderful? Maybe that's why they call it sourdough. The parable, the parable of the mustard seed turning into a tree is abnormal external growth. The parable of leaven is abnormal internal growth. And the church 
is no longer about the business of what God desires. And then he goes on to explain the parable, the wheat and the tares. And we've studied all that and you're all grounded. We've, we've studied the concept of theonomy, theos meaning God, nomos meaning law. Applied theonomy is applying God's law to the earth. Genesis 1.26 says that we're to have dominion over the earth. We've been created in his image and we have dominion over the earth. As I said in the Lord's Prayer, it's the same thing. And people think today, especially in the church, that now that we're saved by grace through faith, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We've kind of, through pietism, we've moved away from applying God's law uh, in the kingdoms of man and trying to establish his kingdom on the earth. And we've moved away from that. But Jesus clearly said, in, in Matthew chapter 6, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. God wants us to live by his standards. Have no debt but to love. Don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. Don't commit adultery, don't commit fornication. These are all standards, the 10 commandments. One God, no idols, right? Third commandment, uh, don't say anything bad about the Lord. Don't take his name in vain. Honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Um, fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother to go well with you. You live long on the earth. Don't commit murder. That's the sixth commandment. The seventh is don't, you know, commit adultery. Um, the, the eighth commandment is uh, don't steal. And we go on and on with, with these commandments and they need to be instilled in the lives of our children. Most of you, as I'm going through these commandments, you don't know them. We're a biblically illiterate culture. And we're wondering what's happened to this freedom. And we've gone through all of this. But as God's laws applied, the Bible says that when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And when the wicked rule, the people grumble. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. And so here we are as Christians. What do we do with the law? We apply it. Jesus is taking these parables to say, this is the earth. You must prepare the soil with my word and it'll be fruitful. And that's what we're called to do. We engage in the culture. We've gone through the seven mountains of cultural influence, arts and entertainment, media, uh, education, politics, religion. We're supposed to engage in these areas, business. You heard Pastor Mark share a phenomenal message on applied theonomy in relation to work. And so we go through these, and now if Jesus is finished teaching the parable of the soils, a parable of the wheat and the tares, a parable of the leaven, the parable of, uh, of the mustard seed, now he's going to go into... A, a few more parables. These are a little different. And this is where it's going to get a lot of fun. So we're going to pick up at verse 44. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Jesus speaking, he says in verse 44 of Matthew 13, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and was a sea and gathered some of every kind of fish, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good fish into the vessels, but threw the bad ones away. And so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the disciples, have you understood all these things? I love their answer. Like, uh, yeah, you bet. Yeah, sure. And a lot of us are going, no, yeah, I'm trying to understand it, Lord. And actually the word for, do you, do you understand? It's not the word gnosko where you grasp it completely, but it means, have you come into alignment? Are you starting to get this? So their answer was legitimate. They're saying, yeah, Lord, it's coming into alignment. We're, we're starting to grasp this as all of us are. Verse 52, then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. By the way, a scribe is similar to an attorney, a uh, law clerk. They observe the law, they write the law down, they follow the law, they apply the law. They understood what he was saying here. Verse 53, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there and he, uh, when he had come to his own country, and everyone say Nazareth. Nazareth. Let's try it again, Nazareth. Nazareth. So when he had come to his own country and he was from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? 
Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And so they were offended at him. And Jesus said to his disciples, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and his own house. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Not that he was, he was hindered from doing, not that he didn't have the power to do it. He just, their unbelief, just they, they weren't interested, so he didn't do it. And God's a gentleman. He's not going to go where he's not invited. He wasn't invited. It's, it's our requirement to invite him into our heart. He wants to take up residence and make us a temple of the Holy Spirit and transform our lives from the inside out. He catches his fish before he cleans them. He said, come to me, filthy and dirty and all your issues. That's fine. I, I'm, I've already looked past that. I've covered it. Come to me. And then when you do, he takes up residence. He, he, you invite him in, he'll come. He's precious that way. You don't want him there, he won't be there. But there is a consequence to it, and he laid it out. No one spoke more of hell than Jesus because he didn't want anyone to go there. And um, I tell you, as a pastor, and we're going to pray in a moment, but as a pastor, I wish there wasn't a doctrine of hell. It'd make my job so much easier. I, I tell my Mormon friends, I go, look, your doctrine has three heavens and no hell. Mine has a heaven and a hell. Mine's a tougher sell. But the reality is there is a hell. Hell is everything that God isn't. You, you're living eterni- eternity. You've, you've taken the exit from God and you say, I don't want to be in your presence because God can't be amongst sin. He's given you the opportunity to be cleansed of your sin by his son's blood. You reject that, then you reject being in his presence. So everything that God is, hell isn't. And everything that hell is, God isn't. If God is life and love and goodness, hell is the exact opposite. And we're created for eternity. So you get to, it's like, you know, olden days when you were flying, smoking or non-smoking. So that was funny kind of a little bit. Let's pray. Lord, I ask your blessing on the study of your word. And Holy Spirit, cause us to come alive to it. Lead us into all truth. Lord, if anything comes from my lips that is not of you, I, I just pray you'd strike it from everyone's memory, including my own. Lord, that man would decrease, that your spirit might increase. It's your word that brings life because it is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. You allow man to hermeneutically teach it, but yet, Lord, sometimes we get in the way, and I pray that wouldn't happen today. So God, please be glorified. We love you. Be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated. We've studied this countless times. You're the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You don't put a light, you don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but you put it on a lampstand that gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, it followed that exact verse this applied theonomy, God's law on the earth, and this is what we're called to. And so with us being called to this, Jesus gives these parables that are deeply profound, and we've often in Christendom misinterpreted them because we love to make it about us. And we think to ourselves, well, where are the treasure hidden in the field? Well, where are the this? Where are the that? And actually, in, re- in regards to this parable, it's not quite that. And in regards to the parable, the first one especially, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. We're going to cover those in a moment. But before we do that, I want to share with you um, a story that will tie into the message today. And it's, it's fascinating to me. Uh, it has to do with my trip. I just took to Grass Valley. Uh, my, my, my brother-in-law uh, was getting married. He'd been married before. Um, and uh, he had two children by the previous marriage. The woman he was marrying, she had been married before. She had one child from the previous marriage. And uh, they had both gone through terrible divorces. Um, my brother-in-law is a bit estranged from his two children. Um, my new sister-in-law is estranged from her first husband, but very endeared to her daughter. Her daughter is a teenager, precious girl. And, and Rick, my, uh, my, my brother-in-law, I have two brother-in-laws named Rick. Michelle has two brothers named Rick because she's from a blended family. Uh, Rick is, I think, the oldest of, of all the kids in my wife's family. And I remember... 28 years ago when I asked for Michelle's hand in marriage, it was, it was my mother-in-law's birthday party and I had never met my father-in-law before. And so I was going to ask for Michelle's hand in marriage the very first time I met my father-in-law because I'm an idiot. <laughs> so, so we get, we get to the house and I'm, I'm at the house and, um, 
I had met my mother-in-law before, my soon-to-be mother-in-law, but I never met my father-in-law. And the party's going on. It's getting late into the evening. I'm pressed for time because I'm a salesman. I have to get back to my responsibilities. And this was the night that we were gonna pop, I was going to pop the question, ask for a hand in marriage. Well, Rick, the oldest, the guy who I just officiated his, his wedding, he sits down at the table when everyone had left and he is there and my, you know, Tom and Dee and Michelle and I, and we're like, gosh, Rick, go away. And he's just, and then you put alcohol and he's like, and he's louder and louder. And I'm looking going, you know, I got a brother who's already like you. I don't know that I want another one, you know? And, and he's just, he just nonstop. And he only stops to talk to change clips and just, and you're, you're trying double dutch to get into the conversation and he's just boisterous and opinionated and and finally he just burns out and, I, and i'm fighting to keep awake i'm 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 gonna get this woman's hand i'm gonna close this deal i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna wait you out man and he starts to fade and off he goes i'm like finally it's two in the morning yeah and i'm a little irritated with him you know but i'm still gonna marry her because she's fine and, and I, you know, I, I asked my father-in-law and he reluctantly agrees. Uh, and then, you know, 28 years I've been with him being my brother-in-law and I've, I've seen him go through rocky roads and self-centered and self-consumed and boisterous and opinionated and, and, you know, just telling you how special he is and, 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 and then I've watched his life kind of crumble and crash. And I've been with him as he's, he's crying and, and he's broken and then he's arrogant and this whole roller coaster with my brother-in-law. And, and through the process of 28 years, I've come to just deeply, deeply love this man. And I've, I've seen him in some of the tryingest of times. And, and he was one of those in the family. My, my in-laws weren't believers. My brother-in-law wasn't a believer. My sister-in-law isn't a believer. My, none of Michelle's family except for one sister-in-law. Nobody in her family is a believer. And when we went into the ministry, they were like, we have got to deprogram Michelle from Jim Jones. We got to get him away from Rob McCoy. And they were all like, they, they did not want anything to do with me. And seriously, they were upset because they're all successful. One's a big developer in Vegas and he's a big developer in Chico. And the other was, uh, you know, a, um, a Top Gun instructor, F-18 pilot, first strike off the USS Roosevelt in the first war in, in Iraq. And, you know, they're all, and I'm, I'm some starving youth minister in Fresno. And, and they're, you know, so I'm like, oh, poor him. And they want, they want to save their sister from knucklehead. And, and I'm, I'm having to contend with this all these years. And this was what was so different about it all. Um, Rick, what came to our Easter service, and he, he, he had a profound transformation to Christ. He's a totally different human being. I don't know who this man is. And he's calling me for verses. He's, he's weeping at the table, talking about Valerie, his fiance, who is a pastor's kid. She had had a little struggle. She's back with the Lord. He is just, he's in love with the Lord. He's in love with her. He's in love with her daughter. He, he's a different man. I I can't describe to you the miracle before my eyes. You wouldn't know it. I've seen it for 28 years. And, and, and the, the wedding was precious and doing a family wedding is I've, I, I never get nervous. I've done over 200 weddings. I stopped counting years ago and I swore I would never do any more weddings because you know, Saturday and then people have location weddings and you got to drive there and you never see your family. And then they, you know, want you to, and and I'm like, I'm not doing more. And I still do weddings. I, I, I have a problem saying no. Uh, and, and I, I always enjoy doing the weddings and, you know, quite honestly, it's like the trip to Israel. This isn't bragging. I'm just the best there is. So I'm just speaking the truth in love, in love and humility. So the wedding was, was spectacular, but I want to, <laughs> no, but I want to tell you the best part of the trip. So my wife went up ahead because Rick is still frugal. Some would say cheap. I like the word frugal. He has me do it so he doesn't have to pay me. He has my son-in-law play music and my daughter-in-law sing so he doesn't have to pay them. And then my other son-in-law does the sound and then he does it at my in-law's house. <laughs> He's frugal. So just like my father-in-law. And uh, that was a little sweet jab, you know. 
So my wife goes up ahead because my father-in-law's in his 80s and my mother-in-law's in her 70s and she, she has this heart to serve. And she goes up there and when she's up there, she's all about serving. She's the first to awaken and the last to go to bed and she's cleaning up and Tom and Dee love having our family there. Michelle makes sure all the kids and myself were always working nonstop. So she went up early, but I wanted to do the men's study on Friday morning. So I finished the men's study and I caught a flight to go to Sacramento. Brett takes me to the airport uh, I get there, I catch the flight, land in Sacramento. And I had texted Michelle two days earlier and the day before. And I said, this is the flight number. This is the departure time. This is the arrival time. I'll be at gate this and terminal A. And I sent it forward to her and I said, I'll be there because the, the plan was I'd fly up there. I'd take my car and drive back all night to get here because there was a dedication for a service. And I want to be with you. So I land. We actually land early. It was a good flight. I got upgraded to Economy Plus, <laughs> legroom. <laughs> Slept for a half hour, plane landed. It's cool. I left 78 degree temperatures in LA, landed to 100 degree temperatures in the oven of Sacramento. And I'm staying in the terminal because it's cool. And I figure, well, I'll call Michelle and let her know I'm here early. And I go, honey, I'm, I'm here early. Are you, you're, on, you're, you're close? And she said, I'm, what? I said, I'm, I'm here early. Are you on your way? Are you almost here? She goes, am I picking you up? And I go, did you want me to walk? Because from the airport to their house in Penn Valley is an hour. And she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, honey, I sent you the flight time and the departure time, the arrival time, the gear terminal. I mean, why would I do that? And I was irritated, honestly. And you could hear it in my voice a lot. And she says, I'm leaving right now. I'll go, no, because it's going to take you an hour to get here. It's an hour back. I'm going to miss the barbecue. I'm supposed to help cook. I just, just stay there, serve your parents. I'll get an Uber. And I pull up Uber and I look at it. It's a pretty reasonable price. I'm thinking, I'm going to do Uber from now on. It's cheaper than her driving back and forth. So I punch in the Uber and, and, I, and, and I hit the button. And immediately a guy, uh, Franklin uh, Aldrich, Frank Aldrich, he comes and he says, I'll, I'll be there in, in eight minutes. I go, okay, Frank, looking forward to seeing you. I'm like, it's going to be an hour drive with an Uber. You know, I, I hope he's not some wacko guy. I see an Uber driver right there. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is going to be an hour with somebody I have no idea with. And, and I just said a little prayer, you know, Lord, would you make it special? And he, he, he pings me back and he goes, I'm, I'm out in the field looking for you. Cause I'm looking at him going, driving all over the place. I'm like, what in the world? He goes, I'm out by the rice field, by the big building. I go, I'm at the airport, bro. What, what do you, he goes, well, why does it have, I go, I don't know. I put location just like you do with Uber. I press a button. Well, can you reset? Try, won't reset. It's too far out of the location. I'm like, he goes, please, this is a good fare. It's, it's an hour drive. Would you just not touch anything? When we get there, we'll reset it and just wait out where the Uber cars are. And I'm like, okay, so I'll be there shortly. I walk out there. They don't do anything for covering out there. So, you know, I'm Irish. I don't, I don't tan. I bubble. And, I, and as I'm out there in the heat, I'm like, where is this dude? And I'm, I'm saying a little prayer and he pulls up. Sure enough, missing a couple teeth, tattoos down the sleeves, both sides. You know, he's, 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 he's had a life, you know, there's, there's stories on his body written. And uh, I'm like, well, this is good. You know, hey, Lord, <laughs> thanks so much. And, and uh, I go, uh, it's going to be a long drive. I'm not really interested in sitting in the back. Do you mind the front seat? He goes, I prefer it. I go, okay. So I get in the front seat. We sit down. We're driving. And uh, I go, you know, here's, here's some money for your troubles. He goes, hey, thanks, man. And, you know, and I go, no, it's, you're driving all around. He said, we get about 10 bucks an hour. And he says, I do this because I broke my back. I used to be an air-conditioned guy. And... He's telling me a story and he said, but I'm thankful for the Uber job, even though it's 10 bucks an hour because it helped me get clean and sober. I go, oh, really? He goes, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I go, well, you're driving with a pastor. <laughs> and he goes, really? And I go, yeah. And he says, uh, he goes, wow, what a day this has been. And as we begin to drive, I go, you know what, Frank, we got an hour. I got to hear this story. Because I said, Frank, I'm looking at you and I can tell with your right hand that your fingernails are manicured and pointed, which tells me you play guitar. But I'm looking at your left hand and your fingers are deformed. Your two fingers are deformed and your hand is cramped. So how do you play the guitar with a jacked up hand? He goes, man, you're perceptive. I go, well, yes, I am. <laughs> Just like I do good trips to Israel. <laughs> he says, well, I do open notes. I don't know a lot about music. He says, I do open notes with a 12 string guitar so it sounds better. 
I go, what happened to your hand? He goes, well, I was a hell's angel. I go, really? <laughs> he goes, yeah, I was a hell's angel. Um, I was a heroin addict. I was a crystal meth addict. I was a dealer. Uh, and I got stabbed in the arm. He showed me the scar. I'm like, oh, and he goes, and then it, I kind of got it fixed. And then I cut it with a bandsaw. And then that was the end of it. And I go, okay, let's do this story beginning to end. And he goes through his whole life story. At four years of age, his mother uh, died when he was four and he was locked in the room because he couldn't get out at four. He couldn't reach the knob for 12 hours with his mother's dead corpse. Um, he, he ended up homeless. He was a heroin addict. He, he, he had a terrible life. Um, and he, he tells the story about how he ended up coming to the Lord and it was just ripping my heart out. Talked about how he came to Christ and he talked about how he had stolen from his sister. He had ripped her off. And he just said, you know, if it was bad, I did it. And he said, and I, I, I'm just shocked I'm alive today. And it was a humble testimony. He wasn't glorifying his past. He was sickened by it. And he said, and God has used us, and I, I'm married now, and I've got a precious wife. And, and he said, when I stole from my sister, she was, she was sick with COPD. And her husband and her two kids had died in a plane crash, and she had been left money as a result of it. And so she lent me money, and, and I stole it from her. And when I came to Christ, the pastor said, if you have an issue with your brother, leave your offering at the altar, go and be reconciled. So I went all the way from the high desert to Sacramento through Mojave or wherever. I don't even remember. He just said, in the, and I was hitchhiking the whole way. I was out of money. I get to her door. I knock on the door. She opens it. She slams the door in my face. I'm like, God, I came all this way. And he's just, he's emaciated. And he's coming off crystal meth and he's just struggling. He said, I went all the way back to the, to the high desert. The pastor goes, you go back. She's sick. You don't want to live with this. Does that trek all the way again. Shows up at her door. She opens it. He goes, what is your problem? And he just looks like he's been beaten up. She says, all right, what is your problem? He says, I just wanted to tell you I'm sorry. And I, I, I want to work off the debt. Anything you need done on the house, I'll do it. And she said, you're not staying here. And she, he said, I'll sleep wherever I can sleep, but I'll be here every day to fix that. And he applied theonomy. I want to make restitution for what I stole. And sure enough, for, for five months, he worked to pay every penny back to her. And she had him sleep in the, in the shed. And finally, at the end, she just said, Frank, what has happened to you? You are not the man I used to know. He says, it's Jesus. He ends up leading her to the Lord She's so touched by his life. She says, Frank, come live with me. He takes care of her through her death and she dies. And Frank's going to go back to, to the high desert. But the will is read and she's put his name on the trust for her house that he's allowed to live there. And he, he said, you know, God restored everything the locusts have eat, had eaten sevenfold when I came to him. He said, and today I woke up and I was in full depression he said, crystal meth and opioids do that to you. You go through depression. I said, I know I've been through the whole issue. He said, and I didn't want to get out of bed, but I needed to get the car payment done. And he said, I, I had just taken a group of uh, uh, two girls to Chico. And he said, I was coming back to the Sacramento airport and the queue was 37 deep, which means it would have been two hours before I got another fare. And, and when I was on Highway 70 and you pinged me, it used me because it thought that you were out in the rice field. Yeah, I can clap on that one. And he said, and I end up being with you. And while I'm coming to pick you up, my younger sister called me, who is the, the trustee of the estate and said, Frank, you're 61 years old. You don't need to be treated like a child. I've taken the house out of the trust. It's yours. And he said, and then I sit with you. And I, and I don't know anything about you, but I'm just so blessed to spend this time with another believer that I can testify of God's goodness. And we were both blown away. And he goes, Rob, I don't know how much longer we have driving, but would you tell me about your life? I tell him about my life, Natasha, Michelle, the kids, what we've doing as a church, the things that we've participated in. We're both sobbing. And we get to the house and I go, come on, we're meeting the family. <laughs> and, and we walk in and, and they're like, hey, Rob, who's that? You know? <laughs> And he's missing teeth and he's tatted and he's all, Michelle. And he, she's like, <laughs> you know, and, and you're Molly. And, oh, that's Liberty. And, oh, Oliver. 
you know, and there's Kelly. And the only one he didn't meet was Natasha. I said, we're saving that for when you come and play because he's in a band. I said, you're bringing your band. I don't care if your music stinks. You're coming to play. He said, I can't wait to meet the folks. I said, they're going to love you. I mean, I love you, Frank. And we had the neatest time. And I, and I got out of that. And then I'm watching my brother-in-law, Rick, and I see the mending of the family and the healing. And I'm looking at all the folks, my, my in-laws have come to Christ. My, my brother-in-laws come to Christ. There's another brother-in-law who is the F-18 pilot, hard as cement and prideful. And uh, he come, I'm, I'm leaving to get, on, to get in the car. It's, it's midnight. Mike and I got to go. And this other Rick, the pilot, comes up to me and goes, Rob, I know you got to go, but can I talk to you? I'm like, yeah, Rick. And he is, you know, this guy's highly decorated. He's a businessman. He goes, Rob... I'm all in. I go, what do you mean, Rick? He goes, Jesus is my savior. He said, I've been going to church. I didn't want anyone to know. I just want you to know, I get it now. I've watched my sister that I've been praying for for 35 years. I'm I'm watching and I'm, I'm blown away. And I just want to tell you right now, I want you to take the thing that you think is the most impossible thing in your life and you put it in the hands of the Lord. Watch what he does. Watch what he does. Because we're going to take a look at the Pearl of Great Price. We're going to take a look at this treasure in the field. God's going to speak to you today and minister to your heart. And he picked an obscure man by the name of Frank Aldrich to prepare the message today. So let's take a look at the passage. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, people think, okay, who is, what's the treasure and what's the field? The field is the world. It's the earth. And obviously, the Lord is the man. But what's the treasure? This is Exodus 19. Let me tell you what the treasure is. Exodus 19, verses 4 and 6, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, God says to Moses, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, speaking of the nation of Israel. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, my commands, my theonomy, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, the field is mine, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. You look at the 1040 window, longitude and latitude on the earth. There's one democracy and it's Israel. And you go into Israel and it's flourishing, a desert that's blooming. They feed Europe. It's the only nation on the face of the earth that's national language was once dead and has been revived. It's never happened in the history of the world. And it was actually prophesied. You spend time in Masada, where the last place that the Israelites held ground. And then the Romans, you'll see the embankments as they destroyed Masada. And then when Israel became a nation again in the 40s, they rejoice. And now you see what's happening. And this is that treasure in the field. It's a nation of, ready? It's a nation of, pay attention. It's a nation of laws. Not just man's laws, but God's law. That blesses a nation whose God is the Lord. And from these Ten Commandments and the things that we learn in Leviticus and Deuteronomy applied to the earth, this is that treasure. God restores his treasure. And he preaches the gospels, it says, to the Jews first and to the Gentiles second. And the Apostle Paul wanted to be an apostle to the Jews, but he ended up being called to the Gentiles. It was the apostles that first the gospel was preached to Israel. And Israel didn't understand the law. They thought that the law would save them. The law doesn't save. The law is a schoolmaster to drive you to Christ. And when the law is applied to the earth, it doesn't save all the earth. God's not interested in the earth. He's interested in all being saved. You would want that none would perish, but all be saved. But he knows that thy kingdom come, thy will be done. His kingdom is established on the earth. Not everyone will be saved, but they will know of the precepts and the commands of God because his people have established it on the earth. And so you see this, and this is Israel right here in this parable. And this is that treasure hidden in a field that the Lord purchased with his own blood. And he went to the house of Israel first, and he preached the gospel to them. Now, we know that the leaven, as we saw the parable of the leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees is that they added to God's word. The leaven of the Sadducees is they took away from God's word. But this is the nation where God's word was established. This is where the word became flesh and dwelt with man in this nation. Jesus never left Israel. He started there and ended there. 
and and we're gonna we're gonna be in in the lowest point on earth at the Dead Sea, and you're gonna go to the Qumran caves, where a young shepherd boy threw a stone into one of the caves because uh, one of the flock had gone into the cave. He tried to get out, and he heard something crack like pottery. He crawled up into the cave, and he found the Dead Sea Scrolls that had been there for thousands of years, completely preserved under all these different levels of atmosphere so the rays wouldn't penetrate and it was dry so they wouldn't rot. I mean, when I said I'm Irish, I don't, I don't tan, I bubble. You can be in the Dead Sea shirt off out in the sun and you don't burn because you're protected by all the levels of atmosphere because it's so low. And here they, they have these Dead Sea Scrolls completely intact verbatim to what we have today in our original text that's been preserved. His word doesn't return void. It was established there. This is that treasure for all mankind. God gave his life that we would know this and establish this upon the earth. Then he tells another parable. We see Israel, and I'll add one more thing in regards to to that parable of the hidden treasure in the field. Psalm 135 verse three says, praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. For I know that the Lord is great and our Lord is above all gods. The apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth, he said, there's, there's three categories on the earth. There's three categories on the earth, the field. And every one of these parables has a field. There's three categories representing the earth. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 32 and 33. He says, give no offense either to Jews or to the pagans, Greeks, or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. These are the three categories, Jews, pagans, the church. Jews, pagans, the church. And so the Lord addresses the Jews here, and he's going to address the church in this next passage of Scripture, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Pearl of great price. This is an interesting one. You see, Jews didn't value pearls. You read the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the Old Testament, nowhere do you see the word, word pearl used in the Old Testament. Some of your translations in the book of Job will have the word pearl used one time, but if you look at the original Hebrew word, it should be crystal, not pearl. Jews didn't understand pearls. They weren't a seafaring people. They liked gems that they could cut and fashion with facets. All their jewelry was gems. A pearl was not something that could be cut. You cut a pearl, you destroy its value. And this pearl of great price to the Jews, they're listening going, a pearl of great price. They they didn't think highly of pearls. Pagans thought highly of pearls. It was said of Cleopatra that she had two pearls estimated to today's value, each pearl so large, it would have been worth $250,000 for one pearl. She had two of them, and to impress Mark Antony, she put them in vinegar till they dissolved, and then she drank them. Just a thought. <laughs> but this, these pearls for the Jew, Jesus is not speaking to the Jews, and they couldn't quite grasp it. This pearl of great price hidden in a... Uh, what, what are you... I, I don't understand. This merchant travels for pearls? Why wouldn't you travel for gems? And they had no value in the Old Testament. You see, a pearl only has value when it's whole. It has to maintain its unity. If you try to split a pearl, you ruin it. Try to facet a pearl, you ruin it. A pearl has its value and its unity. A divided pearl destroys its value. And so... In this picture, if anyone understands how a pearl is formed, it's fascinating because this represents the church. A pearl is formed, and this is how it comes together. It is the product of a living creature that has been, are you ready? It's the product of a living creature that has been wounded. And it's been wounded by something, and then it surrounds that, that thing that's wounded it with beauty. I'm looking at a room full of people who've been wounded. I was just with a family that I can go through every issue they've ever faced. They've all been wounded. And you know what? Somehow that got in your gullet 
and it's just eating at you. It's destroying you. You've got some broken relationships. You've got some family deals. There's things you've done. You've wounded yourself. You've, you've hurt people. You've hurt your family. You've hurt yourself. You've hurt strangers. You've lived outside the covenant of God. You've been a liar and a thief. You, 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 we go through the Ten Commandments. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And you're sitting here in what is called the pearl of great price. And, and the only difference between those that are the pearl and yourself is they've allowed this wound, they've given it to the Lord. You see, the persistence of the oyster when it's wounded is to cover itself in the healing beauty and a sense of Christ and trust him with this expectation of victory over all these trials. Jesus says you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. You're a new creature in Christ. He exchanges your ashes for beauty. I wrote down a couple of passages. This is Isaiah 61.3. God, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We've, we've studied Romans 8.28 where Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good with those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.37 says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors in him who loved us. And I gotta tell you, if, if you're having a struggle trying to picture what I'm speaking of, I, I can show you a pearl. It's called Frank. That's a man who's been wounded and he's wounded. He was hurt. He was, he was battered and beaten. We can turn that off now. Who's beeping? They're going to blow up. Do something. <laughs> he was hurt. He was battered. He was bruised. And he hurt others. And he hurt them really bad. He hurt his sister. He hurt his family. He hurt two previous wives. He had a daughter that he had never met. And he comes to Christ. He says, Lord, I've wounded a lot of people and I give you my life. And God says, okay. And he starts to smooth out the rough edges and he's rolled around in the heart of the Lord. And he goes and he apologizes and it's a layer of beauty. And he goes and he reconciles with his daughter and there's a layer of beauty. And he forgives those who's hurt him and he's a layer of beauty. And this pearl of great price that I get into a car and I look next to me and I don't see tattoos. I see a man who's touched me deeply. One of the most precious rides I've ever had. He would say the same of me. See, this is the church. We're the product of a living creature that's been wounded. The difference for some of you is you haven't been willing to give that up. You see, when I officiated my brother-in-law's wedding, his son wouldn't come. He was too angry. He wouldn't come. I hadn't seen Ryan in a long time. I wanted to minister to him. He wouldn't come. You know who lost out that day? Ryan. He wanted to carry his bitterness and hold it against his dad. And I'll tell you what. You hurt me. I'm wounded. A living creature that's been wounded. And all you are is a wounded creature. You're no pearl. You're just bleeding and dying. God says, come to me. I want to work it together for good, like I did with Frank. I want to do for you. I can turn your ashes into beauty, your mourning into an oil of joy and gladness. But you see, the church is beautiful when we give God all of it. Like my other brother-in-law, Rick, said, I'm all in. He's being rolled around transformed. His wife's not completely sure he's all in. I said, don't worry, Rick. Don't worry. Raul Reese, when he converted to Christ, he was ready to kill his wife and his two boys and then commit suicide. And as he had the gun loaded, because he had seen his wife's bags packed, because he had been beating her day in and day out. And he was this whacked out Vietnam vet. And she was a, a missionary kid. And she had married him after gotten pregnant. And, and it was awful. And he was ready to kill her. And he saw Chuck Smith on TV and gave his heart to the Lord. 
His wife comes home and she sees him in there and she starts to run and he's running after her going, no, 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 I've given my heart to the Lord. She's like, yeah, right, you're gonna kill me. And it took three years for her to believe and see the fruit of his life before she'd come back home. And that's where you have Pastor Rawl and, and Sharon Reese. I said, Rick, give it time. God's still gotta fashion you, polish you. Stay there, give him the wounds. You see, we're the pearl of great price. And this is what God wants to do with us. But, you know, the enemy wants you to think that you're worthless. He wants you to stay in your bitterness and your unforgiveness. He wants to keep you outside the body of Christ. And if you're in the body of Christ, he, he, he wants you to arrest your development. You, you, you started the process, but he wants to arrest that development. And he lies to you. The enemy lies to you. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the author of lies. He hates you. He's a roaring lion roaming about seeking who may, may devour. And this is the propaganda. It's used in war. Propaganda in war is to kill the morale of their opponent, of the enemy. And so they lie to you. I mean, you just think in World War II, you know, the Nazis lied to both Switzerland and France. And they said, we're going to dominate you. And Switzerland didn't believe the lie. They go, come on. Every one of our folks have trained. We're ready for you. We'll shoot twice, kill you all. And we'll go home. And Hitler realized we can't do, we can't invade Switzerland. That's going to be a fight. Let's just leave that alone and go, we'll take on France. And France believed the lie. They had the Maginot line. They had a strong army. They just melted. And the only weapon Satan has is fear. That's all he has is fear. And he paralyzes you from being transformed because you're afraid. God said he hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And Satan's propaganda has been to convince the bride, the church, that she can't institute the affairs of the groom on the earth like in Proverbs 31. And so we believe that and we think, well, we, we can't fix the world. We can't, we can't help the field because we're just polishing brass on a sinking ship. And we look at our children and our children's children. We think, well, we can't make a difference. And God's saying, yes, you can. Have you seen the work I do? Have you seen Frank? Have you seen the Coletti family? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And the enemy has us believing that, that defeat is assured until God throws it all in, in the fire in the end. He's just, you know, we, we can pretend like we're Christians, but, but Satan's going to dominate the earth, and then he's just going to throw all the bad fish into the, into the fire. And I got news for you. Rick Coletti and Rick Claggett are not being thrown in the fire, and the ship isn't sinking. There are people out there to be reached and to touch, and God wants to fashion and form them and let them know of his love and his mercy and his grace. But how will they know unless someone tells them? How will they know what right and wrong is unless we establish his kingdom on the earth, unless we prepare the soil and scatter the seed? This is the whole line of the parables. God's waking up his church. We're the pearl of great price. He sold it all. He gave it all. And yet we hold back. We're afraid. We believe Satan telling us, oh, your victory is going to be later, way later, in a mystical future. God is saying, no, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a mystical future. It's now. It's in an Uber ride. It's at a family wedding. It's at City Hall. It's at the supermarket. It's at the school board. Fill in the blank. It's now. To our shame as the church, we believe the lie of the enemy. We believe the propaganda of the enemy. And we accept one costly cycle of defeat. And we give Christendom to the pagans. We don't see the pearl of great price or the treasure in the field. We just give the world over to secularism. And we let everyone implode. And we become saltless and lightless. And we cover the light under a bushel and we just get trampled underfoot. But Jesus said we're more than conquerors. We win this war now and in the future. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. This parable is to awaken us to who he has made us out to be. I'm almost finished. I can see you guys fading a little bit. The parable of the dragnet. 
Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and they threw the bad away. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. And there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said, have you understood these things? I said, yes, Lord, we have. To the best of our ability, we've, we've kind of aligned it. We're getting it. He then said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure, things new and old. So the dragnet's coming, just like in the parable of the wheat and the tares. The angels are going to separate it. Every chapter in Revelation, save but for two, speaks of the angels. And the dragnet's coming. And we want, we want good fish. God didn't want any to perish, but it all would be saved. He catches his fish before he cleans them. And as he puts this out there, he says, now you, every scribe is instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven. I just told you how it works. There's the law, there's the church, and there's you. And there's judgment coming, and I'm calling you to make a difference. You're the householder, and you bring out of your treasure things new and old. The law and grace, the law and grace. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They understand the law, then they come to Christ by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The law establishes it, grace completes it. New and old, new and old. You're the scribes. Scribes are those legal folks engaging in civic affairs, participating in the process of the governments of man. The people would understand that it is his kingdom that we're going to give an accounting to, that dragnet's going out. And Jesus said, let me conclude the understanding of all of this with this last thought. He says, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there and he had come to his own country. What country is that? What was the town? Nazareth. Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. Entire Old Testament, you don't find the word Nazareth anywhere. You go into the Talmud, you don't find Nazareth anywhere. You read the works of Josephus, you don't find the word Nazareth anywhere. It was a a gnat on the butt of an elephant. It was a backwater town. It was a one light town. Nobody, nobody knew anything about Nazareth. It, you blink, you miss it. He's born in Zebulun of Naphtali, in the darkest region of the world, in the most backwater town imaginable, Jesus of Nazareth. He's born in Bethlehem, but he, he grows up in Nazareth. And he goes into this town, and when he came to it, he says he taught them in their synagogue so that the men were astonished, saying, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Who is this guy? Everybody's following him. We know him. Is this not the carpenter's son? His mother's Mary. We know her. They're dirt poor. They can't even bring a sacrifice to, to the temple. They got to bring doves for the poor people. They're on the other side of the tracks. They're, they're socioeconomically distant from us. That's Mary, and they don't even mention Joseph because he's probably dead by now. She's a single mom, not just a single mom. She's a single mom with James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and all the sisters. Judas, who wrote the book of Jude. James, who wrote the book of James. He had brothers and sisters. She wasn't a perpetual virgin. That's not to dismiss my Catholic brothers and sisters. Protestants get some of their stuff wrong too, but this one you got wrong. And here they're saying, we know this family. Where then did this man get all these things? How does he do this? They were offended at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. But this is what was interesting. Mary and the, and the kids thought Jesus was insane and wanted to put him away. You just read the first chapters of the book of Mark. And I got a kick out of this driving with Frank because Frank's family thought he was insane. My father-in-law, my mother-in-law, and all of my in-laws thought I was insane. I was Jim Jones. I've been with this family 28 years. You know, one is a big developer in Vegas and the other's a developer in Chico and the other's a, a, a Navy pilot, highly decorated. And I'm, I'm a youth minister in Fresno. And they, they were, we got to talk to Michelle. This, this guy's, he's not all there. 
And my family was the same way. And I'm trying to tell them about Jesus. And they go, well, what seminary have you gone to? Uh, Fisherman you? <laughs> and, and as the Bible says, wisdom is proven by your children, they start to watch my kids. After they made fun of them, oh, they're homeschooled. And all of a sudden, the kids get older. Hey, we're married for 27 years. Our kids seem to be doing pretty well. They all walk with the Lord. They're always the ones who arrive first and leave last and clean the house. And they love their grandma and their grandpa and they love all their aunts and uncles. And over time, they start going, wait a minute. When did this happen? My brother called me, nine years older, and he goes, when did you become so wise? <laughs> when did you become so stupid? No, I, I <laughs> You apply this and you become that pearl of great price and you prepare the field and you scatter that seed, the first persecution is going to come from your family in the local area in which you live. You know why? Because that's where Jesus wants you to begin. And you stay with them. And they watch layer after layer create this pearl of great price and one day they stand back and they marvel at the beauty of it and they say, whatever you got, I want. Frank got to lead his sister to the Lord. My sister I prayed for for 35 years. She was sitting in the third row right where that man with the blue shirt is seated, raised her hand to receive Christ. I prayed for her for 35 years. I never would have believed she would have come to Christ. My lack of belief, where I'm faithless, God's faithful. My two brother-in-laws are in the kingdom. They're getting rolled around and getting some covering on them. And Jesus going... But listen, you're going to face persecution, but count it all joy. And it brings us right back to where we began in chapter 6. And God says, you're going to be persecuted, but count it all joy. This is what we're about. And this is what God has called us to. And one day, you're going to sit in a car with a guy named Frank. And you're going to go, God, how'd you know I needed that man? How'd you know I was discouraged? How did you work the Uber app to put him in a rice paddy? And Lord, everything I asked you not to put in the car, you did. He had tattoos and he was toothless. Not toothless, but missing teeth. And I said, Lord, you took a wounded man and you made him a pearl of great price that blessed me and continues to bless me and has blessed this congregation. Only God can do that. We're wounded creatures, but in the hands of God, we're the pearl of great price. And that dragnet's going out, and we don't want any fish thrown into the fire. So let's go tend the soil and scatter the seed. And may God bless us and use us. I close with this last part. I was telling Frank about it. I said, Frank, God takes our woundedness and he changes the world. I was telling him a story about my hero, William Wilberforce. Wilberforce had come to Christ at an early age. His parents were pietists. They weren't really, they were cultural Christians, but they weren't committed to Christ. He went to go live with his aunt. His aunt was on fire for the Lord. He gets a conversion to faith into the, in a church with a pastor by the name of John Newton. John Newton had been a slave trader for 20 years and he, he had repented of his sins, and, and he's the one who led little William to the Lord. When his parents found out he was getting all churchy, they pulled him out of the aunt's house and brought him back, and his Christianity faded and was arrested for a season as he began to believe the lie of the enemy. He went into parliament, and then he had a reawakening as he was led by Isaac Milner, who was the mathematician over Oxford. He was a brilliant man who had taken a carriage ride with him to go to France in the summer, and the person he was supposed to go with canceled and so this six foot seven giant William Wilberforce is like five feet maybe four something sickly and this giant it was like hilarious the, the, the carriage was like and God had orchestrated they'd be in that car together like I was in with Frank and Isaac Milner leads him to the Lord he has this awakening and he goes back to visit his old pastor John Newton because he's thinking I got to come out of the ministry if I I have to come out of politics if I'm going to go into the ministry, at which point John Newton says, no, you stay right where you are 
and you do that applied theonomy, you change the world because God has uniquely positioned you. That pearl, John Newton, was a living creature that had been deeply wounded and had wounded others. I want to show you a clip. Let's take a look at Oh, by the way, before we show the clip, pause, sorry. Sorry, bro. He wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton did. And if you see the score on the music, it says words by John Newton, melody unknown. Musical scholars believe since it was done in the minor keys and the melody of the music is a West African sorrow chant. He would hear the moaning and the chant beneath the bottom of the slave ship as he was the captain of the slave ships. And it haunted him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. Everybody knows that song, don't we? That's a pearl. Watch this passage. Let's dim the lights. Albert Finney plays John Newton, and the young man on the left is Wilberforce. This is my confession. You must use it. Names, ship's records, ports, people. Everything I remember is in here. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. You must publish it. Blow a hole in the boat with it. Damn them with it. I wish I could remember all their names. My 20,000 ghosts. They all have names. Beautiful African names. We call them with just grunts, noises. We were apes. They were human. God used William Wilberforce to end slavery in the British Empire 33 years before America ever did without a shot being fired. And a man who took the pain of being wounded and wounding others allowed God to turn it into a pearl that moved a man's life to change a nation. Jesus answered and said to them in John 12, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and glorified it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said an angel has spoken to him. 
And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. But if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this signifying what death he would die. And the people answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? His name is Jesus. And we bring the old and the new. And the law does testify of Christ. And if he be lifted up, all men would be drawn unto him. We must be about the will of the Father. And God will take that hurt and he'll turn it into a pearl of great price that will change one man's heart and an entire nation. This is the parable God wants for us. May God bless you and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this picture of the parables of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price and the dragnet and then our calling, Lord, that you have called us for such a time as this. We will face persecution in our own hometown. We're going to face persecution from our family members, but one day we're going to turn around and they're going to look at us and say, what has happened with you? I want what you have. But Lord, they'll never see it unless we engage in their lives and love them and minister and bless them and do good to those who spitefully use us. Lord, as you've covered the multitude of our sins, may we overlook offense and love them into the kingdom by your tender mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. God, we don't want justice from you. We want mercy. And if we're going to get it, we need to give it. And so those who are the pearl of great price, step forward and let the world see you shine and shimmer and reflect the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.